This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Well, hello everyone and welcome back to Crosswires. It's James here. And this week we've got a slightly different sort of style episode. Um less interviewing, more sort of discussion chatty, which is kind of where we want to be going with the show and we want to keep doing interviews, keep talking to people, but um, my guest today is someone I know from the RMC Retro Discord server, which at the moment, to be fair, is where I'm getting most of my guests. Thanks, Neil. Thanks. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jack, a.k.a. It's an Arse. Hello. How are you? Yeah, very well. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we we uh, come up with a few different topics to discuss, uh, mainly around why is tech so hard these days compared to uh, how it seemed to, to feel that it, it was, uh, mainly with different security concerns. And yeah, I guess uh, it's, it's, it's something that I have to uh, deal with more or less every day um, in, in my uh, job, which is supporting a, a bunch of users at a business. So yeah, I, I get quite um, riled up in it all. So yeah, it's. I mean, one thing we we were discussing earlier because obviously we've been chatting pre-show and uh, and everything. And myself and Jack are both from the north of England, and I mean, I was born in the same glorious county as Jack. But I moved. I remember traitor. I moved when I was very young across the border into Yorkshire. But some of you might notice my northern accents become a little bit stronger in this episode. Mostly because of my proximity to Jack, even though it's a, a you know a VoIP call, but also because I've just been up to see my my, my family, like you know, um, um, hey, cock, hey, up, you're all right. Um, <laughs> and we were discussing. I said to Jack, "Oh, I'm, I'm just having some dinner, old boy. I mean, I'll, I'll be free to chat before the show. Don't you mean tea, lad? No, yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was an awful impression. But it is one of the things I really appreciate about technology is how it allows us to communicate over the distances because. You know, when I was growing up, and we moved from Preston to Leeds, um, I don't mind saying where I was born, I was born in Preston, and we moved to Leeds, and the only way we could communicate in any sort of real time with family members was on the phone. We didn't have any of this signal or this uh, Skype or anything like that. Skype? Skype? What's Skype? (laughs) Um, uh, You know, and... um, I, I just remember phone calls. They weren't the same quality as they were today. You know, for all we joke about the old phone system, even in the last twenty odd years, the phone system, analog phone has improved. The voice quality has become uh, somewhat better, and as we've got mobile phones, we've become better. But I think we have lost the simplicity of just picking up the phone, dialing a number, and speaking to people. So that's kind of one of the reasons we wanted to to talk about this complication. So. Before we dive into that, Jack, so tell people a little bit about yourself. Like you mentioned, you worked in IT, but what's your passion? Um, we, of course, have the obligatory plugs. If there's anything you want to promote, make sure you do it now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> so, all, all my life, I've been interested in technology and computers, and um, it, you know, I've always grew, I grew up with all the machines, uh, like the Master System. 
we had a PS1 sort of when the PS2 was out that we bought new and one of the first machines I actually used and this is interesting I've got I still got the hard drive from um was an Amiga 1200 which uh, there was a picture on it that's just called Jack uh, in deluxe paint and um so the the 1200 had an accelerator in with a real time clock battery on it and so the the it's date stamped in April 1998 so Wow. I would have been two, <laughs> and it's wow. just it's just a crap drawing. But yeah, I showed my parents it, and he and she and my mum went, uh, "Oh yeah, you drew you drew that in the old house." I was like, oh. "Wow!" And then so the that that's I don't remember doing that, but one of my earliest memories is in primary school. Um, it probably would have been about two thousand and one. Um, we still had Acorn Archimedes. Like I think it was an A three thousand. I can see it. I can see it being wheeled into the classroom on uh like it was like a red metal frame desk thing and Oh with looked... white shelves, yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So um and it's a picture of a lion and so the picture is in the book from primary school of all the things I did. And I think it was I think it was either year one or year two. It says Lion by Jack uh, A3000. Uh, looking back on it, it's, it's interesting. We still had that machine back then. So from that to uh, messing with one of one of the first PCs we had was a, a Pentium 2 machine that was an ex-university machine because my mum worked for a university. That was a, an RM Pentium 2, so it would have been an RM accelerator. And um, memories of going to computer fairs we bought a copy of Carmageddon. Um, oh, game, yeah, brilliant game. Growing up with that, and I, I just remember every time we 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 got to the, the you know the the dump and uh, fish through the electronics and I'd take things home and you know I had boxes and motherboards and processors and stuff that I'd mess around with and so I took I took it on board as wanting to do it as a career. Uh, that's what I did in college. I did an IT course in college, and I'm, I'm very fortunate. I seem to drop into really good um, opportunities, and um, I got work experience at a place. They offered me an apprenticeship. I then became first line support. Then I moved on to second line, third line, and now I'm a IT systems administrator for a multi million pound wholesaler. So. It it definitely paid off, but it's the passion that drives me. Awesome. Just just hearing some of those stories and I mean you were saying the computer fair, one of them was in Landundo in Wales. is it Wales? Yeah, it was, yeah, it was a, a radio show that because me uh my granddad was into all the old radio gear and stuff, so we'd go there and then they'd have the, the like the buy and sell hall and um I remember there was a guy who was it was you know, boxes and boxes of laptops that were faulty or whatever, and it was like three for fifteen pound or something. And so, and so I'd, I'd buy laptops. You get like remote control boats and just all sorts of stuff. It's it's really interesting because obviously you know you're you're a little bit younger than I am, and just but you know Acorn Archimedes. So we had Archimedes in the first few years of high school, mm. and they were great machines. Uh, we had BBC Masters at primary school. I have vivid memories. Not so we didn't have the micros. We had the Masters, which 
was sort of the final one. And I just remember so many little things, but, you know, they had monochrome green screens, no no colour monitors. I think mm. we did get an Acorn Archimedes in one of the classrooms. I think our year six classroom had an Archimedes. And I just remember it not working properly with one piece of software. It was some, like, Roman village exploration software that just did not work. You know, going back to, you know, remember those machines were... All you had to do, certainly in the case of like my my 600, is pop the disc in and the game loaded. These days, I mean, okay, we've written down a few notes. I guess this leads into our first topic about sort of keeping systems updated. So these days, when when you get a game, particularly physical games, the first thing you have to do is download the updates. Now, downloading the games themselves, on this iMac... I uh, have a Windows partition, I have a bootcamp partition for gaming because this thing's got a reasonably decent graphics card, enough to play, you know, older some older titles. But just downloading, uh, what was that downloading the other day? Oh, uh, Wolfenstein, uh, the New Order, which is the was the first new Wolfenstein game we brought out. Just the download size of that was huge, and then you know the updates. But um, I got. Um, um, on the recent Switch sale, Doom Eternal was on sale, and then they got Crisis Remastered as well. And I'm like, I want to play these. And I'm like, oh, not only do I have to clear space on the Switch, I have to wait for the downloads to finish. And, you know, reasonably fast internet, but still. But I think we were talking about particularly Windows updates, weren't we? So my experience has always been, you know, Windows updates have always been a pain. And I remember Windows 98 sort of bringing in the whole concept of Windows Update, the Windows Update service, where you you know, you know could go in and go to its website and do that. But it seemed to, it just seems to me that it's gotten more complicated and there's more and more... I'm sounding very grumpy at this point about these, but more and more updates just to do. And, and I remember, you know, I've done... You know, I've worked in tech support. I've worked in IT support for companies. And one of the biggest gripes I had from our users... Now, these were... You know, very impatient people most of the times so was I'm fed up of waiting. I'm fed up of all these updates. Can we not just pause them? Well, no, because we can have important updates. But it does seem that there's more and more. And at least my experience is Windows 10 is kind of like dealing with flies. You think you've got them all, and then one more comes back. Yeah, what's your perception? So I mean, as of recent, Windows 10's pretty good now. Compared to, so Windows 10 really came out in 2015, mm. and it just wasn't ready. It There was no way it was ready. Um, it was even worse than, I think, Windows 11 is now. You know, or upon its release, it was, a, it was so unpolished. Um, but Windows 7 especially, we would, um, you know, reinstall PCs. You know, we, we were still doing... SSD upgrades and Office PCs with Windows Seven, mm. um, you know, just 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 an upgrade for an existing system. It hadn't reached the end of its life, but it was worth sticking uh, two gig more memory in it yeah. and a solid state drive because they were costing you know fifty sixty pound a pop for a one twenty gig at the time. And you'd, you'd do a fresh install of Windows Seven because, well, I don't really want to put an old install of Windows. You know, I don't want to really clone the hard drive over. No. Although no. we did in some cases, if it was just, you know, uh, 
a small business that might have 40 staff, um, but they have a server with folder redirection and all that. We just uh, clean install, install their line of business applications, domain join it, blah, blah, blah. We'd then get phone calls from the business to say, because Fiverr wasn't so widely available at the time, or they'd have a leased line, but it might have been 20 meg or Mm -hmm. 40 meg, and we'd have just got them onto VoIP, or they might have had VoIP, and uh, they'd ring up, and the call would be somewhat choppy, and they'd say, oh, such a thing's not loading, this web page is not loading, or I'm trying to upload this dictation to, to Dropbox, and it's just taking forever. And you'd, it it would be because that machine you've just reinstalled and put on the site is now downloading all the Windows updates. Uh, so, yeah, Windows 7. Uh, so we'd, we'd go and <laughs> disable the Windows update service <clears throat> and come back to it at a later point. Uh, but, yeah, you'd, you'd restart it and it'd go installing updates, one of 192. Yeah. And it would always be when you restarted the machine because you had that really important presentation that you you wanted to restart your machine so everything was fresh and you had a presentation in half an hour. Windows like, nope. Again, you'd, you'd speak to them or whatever and you'd say, look, just leave it because I don't want you turning it off and the implications of whatever happens when we boot it back up again and it either doesn't work, just go and use a different machine. It was it was it was pretty pretty tough tough on internet connections tough on the machines and then very inconvenient for the person actually using it. Um, even even if it was and and the the update service wasn't as reliable. No, it would get stuck and it wouldn't do updates or it would this the service would get stuck and restart and start downloading updates. So there might be ten or fifteen or twenty. Uh, outstanding that it would just all of a sudden start downloading and cause issues for the user or whatever, especially for people on machines with hard drives still. it just sit there thrashing away. When Windows 10 come along in 2015 and we, we held off for a bit, all of a sudden these Windows 7 machines are going and downloading Windows 10 and sitting there waiting to, to install it and then the Windows 10 up, up, upgrade upgrade assistant would install itself as a program over the course of a mo- uh, you know months after release or a year after release, and then it was in the news and stuff. Oh, Windows Seven is force updating to Windows Ten, and Windows Ten, in my opinion, you know, it came out in twenty fifteen. I think the first version was version fifteen oh seven. Windows 10 wasn't really that good of an OS, in my opinion. It wasn't as solid as 8.1 or 7 until 1809 or like 1809 and 1909 were like Mm -hmm. notable versions for me. I think one of them they called the Creator's Update. That's right. And it had like the newer snipping tool, snip and sketch, and a few different options like that. And that's when it. So, how many years is that? That's three or four years between it actually releasing and. In my opinion, when it was very usable and stable, but the Windows update aspect of it definitely now I think is from from a Windows 10 Pro. I can't speak for Home at all, which does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yep. From a Pro edition standpoint, I'm quite happy with the way that it operates. The one thing I don't like is cumulative update 
preview. Yeah, that makes no sense. Why are you downloading and installing a preview of an update when I'm not in a beta channel or anything like that? You know, I'm just a regular user that Mm -hmm. has a pro edition. Why are you wasting my time installing a preview of a cumulative update? (laughs) That makes no sense. Look, and you know, IT policies in different. I've come across this. I mean, let's not get into a whole thing about um, the NHS and not updating Windows. But for legitimate reasons, some IT department will have policies where, hang on, we need to um, stagger our Windows updates. We need to test run, test flight these first, particularly you know when your systems are mission critical. So no, I, I don't get that. Uh, what I will say is I've seen it far too many times where businesses are reluctant to update, not because they have a a compliance need to, but because they're scared of you know, the effects a Windows update could have. I think that's why you should do staggered updates um, and do testing with a... I guess it all depends on the size of your business as well because if you're only maybe like a 10-person business, can you really do staggered updates? Can you have maybe, you know, Janice in the corner over there, uh, the receptionist running the Windows 10 latest update while the others don't? Is that going to be a good control group or do you need a reasonably sized sort of IT team to test it? I mean, nowadays we've got uh, RMM tools, remote management and monitoring tools that IT departments and or MSPs, you know, outsourced Mm -hmm. IT support companies utilize to control Windows updates, which is something I do. And I can tell it which... KB number update to exclude. You know, I keep an eye on the news. I also have it set so that it scans for updates on a certain day and installs them on a certain other day. Uh, there's policies for servers that are staggered. That makes sense. Um, especially in a remote desktop session host environment, you don't want to be installing all of the, in my opinion, you don't want to be installing all of the new updates to all of the hosts at the same time. You might want to put it on one host or a couple of hosts to test it with first, because then at least if users are trying to connect to the uh, the session hosts, if the if one's got a problem, at least you've got the others. If one's one. got a problem, you can take it out of the pool and uh, it minimizes business disruption. But and do you know what I'd forgotten about RMM, RMM tools, and I shouldn't have done because I've used. Well, I I've got a personal favorite only because, very honest, I listen to Linus. I'm, I'm a big Pulseway fan. Um, I have used it in, in production. I really liked it. Um, but I know it's certainly not one that is as widely deployed. But I know there's lots of tools out there. There's a lot of tools out there. So it, depending on how big your company is, what it is you're trying to achieve, there are a lot of different options. And so the options that we used in my last place, which was an MSP, didn't suit um, what... I felt this company needed. It, it was just overly complex. There was no need to have that much. One might argue that having an RMM tool for a, the business of the size that it is is a bit of a waste, but the cost is very minimal. Antivirus is included and managed. Yeah, It manages all of my Windows updates. It provides alerting systems, remote control. Um, it's very valuable, and even it, it provides ticketing. And it's not as advanced as Pulseway, which I did demo and told them it was 
too complicated for what I wanted. They still mm. tried to sell it to me. Awesome. Uh, Pulse Way, Autotask, ConnectWise, all of those are more advanced, although Pulse Way is a lot newer to the game than ConnectWise yes. and Autotask is. But that loops back round to this whole simplicity thing. You know, RMM tools have made your an IT systems admin. From what, you know, I've spoken to other IT system admins in different, you know, lots of different lines. And these sort of tools have made their jobs a lot easier rather than having to run around, uh, you know, and physically, you know, pull out that, you know, that keyboard tray from the um, from the server rack and do all stuff around it. But the amount of stuff you can do remotely now is incredible. And I think that's a real win for making something still very complicated, a complicated process in terms of, the, the necessary complexity and making it user friendly or making it, it definitely IT makes it definitely makes the job easier mm. the technology helps the situation yes and that is that's kind of where i want technology to be i want technology to be helpful not a hindrance and i know people get frustrated i think more so home users on windows updates and you know, I, I work, I support older people with computers, including my parents. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. To be fair, my parents are much easier now because they're on... Honestly, my parents don't actually have a computer in my house anymore. They have two iPads and their phones. Uh, I've got the last of their computers here. That's been sold. Um, and just doing iOS updates, I will say Apple do make iOS updates super easy and smooth. And... You know, in a business environment, you've got tools like Jamf um, for managing Macs and managing iOS devices. They do have a free plan, which I really need to play with to learn a little bit more about it. But, you know, the fact that those devices just work. And, and you know, my, my biggest frustration of non-Windows hardware is, I, I was talking about earlier getting the, you know, the Switch uh, games. Why is it every time I get a new Switch game, I'm like, oh, I'm so excited to play this. There's a new Switch software update. And it's like, you should really update this because if you don't, none of your online features will work until you update. Like, yeah. I think neither of us are saying, and I I hope this is okay, neither one of us is saying skip updates and skip security updates because they're very important. They, you know, the reason we go back to the NHS, one of the reasons the NHS got compromised by the WannaCry uh, ransomware is because they hadn't updated their systems. They were running unpatched systems with known vulnerabilities that look not to get too preachy on this but the minute that an update comes out that says it fixes this vulnerability this cve that means that that vulnerability if it wasn't already is now known and in the wild which means it becomes a potential target for attackers so the minute that vulnerability is out there and known you need to start, in my opinion, and Jack, please do correct me if you think I'm, I'm maybe being a bit harsh, but you kind of need to start your patch process at that point if a minute of vulnerability is in the wild. Yeah, personally, on a personal level, you're not so much at risk no. as those in business, especially if the business deals with a lot of other businesses, especially if that business deals with a lot of other businesses globally and not yeah. just in your country because the communication between those companies <clears throat> that's how things spread mm. uh, the communication between the two it could be an email attachment it could be a link or something like that and we do have technologies to prevent us against that um 
we can train users for it, but we have a responsibility as IT people to do what we can to um, mitigate any such issues. And when the, the Log4j vulnerability, which I think came about uh, late last year. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. I started contacting all of the providers of software that we use, you know, bespoke mm-hmm. business software. And so our ERP package that we use contacted a support company for and asked them to right, is there anything in this that we need to be worried about yeah. and can you tell me what I need to do? And they came back with, yes, there is an element to it that um, is vulnerable, but only if you have X, you know, a plugin or um, package installed that is a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so we didn't have that and everything else was checked and it was fine. But you have to be very much on top of it. When there's so much at risk. That's a really good point. And you do make a valid point that for home users, there's certainly less of a risk. But, I mean, I I do recommend people make sure you are updating your systems. And, you know, there comes a point, I think, my, so look, my general, and this is probably a discussion for a whole different episode, but my general mindset on technology is you should be able to use technology up until the point that it stops getting security updates. More so in a business, but maybe at home. Let let me put it this way. We know that a lot of these vulnerabilities are in browsers, and you use your browsers, browsers for a lot of things, particularly online banking. Online banking has its own set of problems. We're actually going to be talking about sort of like authentication for banking in, in this episode, but and, and passwords. But the last thing you want is to be signing into your online banking with a browser that potentially got a bug that's going to expose all your login credentials or expose your session to an attacker. Again, it might not happen, but it's why, you know, I I really believe in tech should last for as long as it should, which is, again, it's kind of why I'm a big fan of iOS because for all the, you know, for all the jibing that people make about Apple obsoleting their products, most of the Android phones out there have no guarantee or no longevity at all of security updates. Apple, for all the things that Apple do wrong, the one thing they do right is supporting older hardware for quite a decent amount of time. I think the um, the iPhone 7 still gets updates, certainly the iPhone 8. Um, 7 does, and so does 8. My dad's on an 8. Um, and we're on 13 now, so... Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, I think, I might be wrong, but I think the, 6, the 6S is actually still supported as far as i'm aware i know the six isn't the six isn't no which is why um, which is how we how we ended up with so uh, again going back to this whole tech being less more you know sort of useful i'll be very honest when i got my 13 pro the first thing i did did said to my parents right i've now got a 10s that's available who which one of you would like that phone mom said oh i'll take that one so did a deal with mum and I always give them huge discounts because, you know, we sort of agreed, look, I'm not going to give you this for free, but I'm also not going to charge you the earth for it. So she got my 10S and dad got her 8. And it just, they're both now supported on supported phones because mum was on a 6 before she got her 8. My dad was on a 5S. And I just said to him, look, I just it was that banking scenario that I used. Here's my other take on updates. And I don't know if this is something you've come across, but... There are devices in our homes that probably should get more updates, and we do. 
because I can't remember the last time my my Vodafone router. And, and yes, at the moment I am using the stock ISP router. I'm not using its Wi-Fi. I'm using um, Orbi uh, Netgear Orbi Wi-Fi, which I don't recommend. We're going to be doing an episode on on Wi-Fi at some point. For simplicity's sake, at the moment I'm using Vodafone's router, but very rarely do I get a firmware update. And the amount of vulnerabilities that must be in, you know, I think didn't we have a big flaw in WPA? We had a WPA two flaw a couple of years ago. Um, there could be flaws in just, you know, little things like the, the web interface for that router, but they don't get updates. Um, I just got a notification from my... <laughs> you're going to think I'm such a tech snob at this point. I got a notification, old boy, from my Nespresso machine saying it needed a firmware update. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a Wi-Fi connection. Wait, what, what is the point now? Uh, you know, I just wake up in the morning and I press the button and the machine comes on and then it makes me coffee. That's it. That's all it needs to do. It doesn't need to be connected to the internet. Do you know why it's connected to the internet? It's connected to the internet so that it can get the updated list of barcodes for their proprietary pods. That's ah, yes. the only DRM. reason it's connected. Nice. I can check its status. As you said, it's not like I can sit in bed and say, oh, make me a coffee, because guess what? I still have to be in front of a machine to put the cup under and to put the pod in. It can't do that for me. There's there's certain aspects of smart home tech that sort of makes sense and... Being a uh, technology enthusiast like myself, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have dabbled in. Uh... <laughs> well, let's talk smart home tech because it's one of our subjects. So let's. Well, I think you know. We're, I, you obviously, uh, Jack, seen my my setup. You can see obviously I've got Hue lights, and I think I've talked about it in the RMC Discord, and we've certainly talked about it prepping for the show. I love smart home tech, but you know what? I find it at least when I've been trying to choose tech for my parents, it's been complicated. And with the exception of... I I personally try and go for stuff that is HomeKit enabled. So, uh, so it's Apple's HomeKit because that, in my experience, tends to work better. What I try and avoid is Google Cloud... Uh, so Google, oh no, Google Home, Amazon Alexa, even worse ones like, oh yeah, use our cloud. There's been a few cases where cloud services for these smart home stuff is actually shut down, and because that's the only way you could control those devices, effectively you've got a paperweight unless it's got another mechanism. Then there was something to do with the Logitech Harmony, that's one it. of the hubs. That's was it. it. Harmony Hub or something like that's that. That's the yeah. one. That's it. But you've got a bit of an inch because you've got smart home tech, I assume. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. I mean, I think you sort of hit the nail. It, it can go a little bit too far. There are some smart home products. I'm like, no. Some are, why would you ever want that? Some are, oh, that's cool, but it's really a nice to have. Like a smart home shower. Okay, I can see the benefit of that. You can say, you know, be able to have your shower warm up rather than having to go in and freeze certain body parts off. Um, <laughs> it can be preset, but you know, like smart kettles and smart coffee machines, you still have to be there to pour the tea. You know, and being true northerners, we like our tea. You know, <laughs> you know? if if we stick to uh, home appliances. Especially kitchen appliances. So, okay, kettle, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, the cup needs to be there. Yeah. It's like the old teas maids. My grandma had one. My grandma but had they one. They make sense because 
they can you prepare it the night before yeah. you've got your coffee in there you've got um you know your tea bag in your cup your cups under it and it's set for a time and that's when you get up you know yeah. you know you've got to prepare it it's one of those things unless you've got a, a vending machine coffee machine it's not going to provide everything it's not going to provide the cup no. the sugar the milk etc but washing machines right yeah. smart washing machines i'm not really sure about no i can't so I, you know I, I i've considered it but i'm looking at it and i'm thinking mm, yeah no idea ovens yes oven Yes, because I might be in Tesco and I might have this pizza that's £3 reduced or whatever and I'm like, right, I'm going to have pizza tonight and I could just go on my phone and set the oven and turn it on and set it to the temperature. When I come home from doing my shopping, it's ready to go and I don't have to wait for the oven to heat up. So there's that. There's a safety aspect to it. Obviously, right, well, your oven's on, but your oven's on when it's cooking food. But what if it blows up and everything? Well... You don't need smart features to prevent it from blowing up. There's all sorts of safety mechanisms built into these appliances nope. anyway. All the smart feature is doing is um, allowing you to turn it on remotely. So the issue really there for me is the connection between your oven <laughs> and your phone, whatever you may be. Yes, I mean, that's a really good point. Look, you know, I, I have... Not, I'm not going to lie, I have in the past put my slow cooker onto, I've got one of the earlier, it's not one of the new Fred ones, it's one of the Bluetooth ones. Um, I've got an Eve Energy in the kitchen. I actually use it now for a fly catcher, uh, for you know, all these electronic fly things, and I have that set to come on at certain times of the day. Um, but I used to have, and I can still use it for this, I had it so that if I was at work and I put something in the slow cooker sort of ready to go, I could just, from work... Turn on my slow cooker at the right time. So I can see the value in that, but a smart washing machine, the only value I could really see in that, if I'm being honest, is knowing that your washing's done. But I know how long the cycle's going to take. A lot of decent washing machines will tell you how long the cycle's going to take. I can just then tell my smart assistant to set me a reminder to take the washing out in X time. So I don't need that. I don't need to now. Oh, it's now removing that custard stain from from my shirt. You know, I mean, <laughs> here's a look at it. Here's a look at it. It spins around. <laughs> oh, a webcam inside. Oh, I like that. You can just see how. <laughs> no, maybe not. I do like. I think it's Samsung who've got the wonderful little thing of a little door. It's not a smart feature, but it's a cool feature where you can add extra smaller items. Because how many times have I forgot? Like, done my look, put my laundry in, close the door, set it going, and then just behind me, it's put one sock. But did always a sock. It's always yeah. a sock, and that's why I've got loads of odd socks because like we get washed at different times. <laughs> Things like that, I don't see a smart fridge now. A smart, they seem to have sort of gone out of fashion. But, but I liked the idea of being able to be notified about when your milk's going off. All, all you have to really do for it is just unscrew the milk and. Oh, that's gone. That's definitely gone. But that could be handy. But you hit the nail on the head. The connection between your washing machine and your phone. Yeah, as far as I'm concerned, if it's not connected to the internet, it can thrive all it wants within my LAN. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I do for it to not thrive within my LAN is I am trying to stick to Zigbee for all of the devices. I don't have many, but... 
I have actual smart things like, um, well, first of all, in, in my living room, I have a projector. Nice. And the projector is in mounted to the ceiling uh, in the, the line of where the the big light is <laughs> on the ceiling, <laughs> the main light for the living room. And, and so, big, sorry, I just love that you use that term. Wonderful <laughs> big light. Put big light on. <laughs> Sorry, big light. Sorry, we... I don't have big telly. <laughs> I don't have big light. I took the big light down because it was in the way of the projector. We should, we should probably explain for our non-northern listeners, but big light is typically what you refer to as the main light. <laughs> Jack's just literally disappeared from camera because he's laughing. But it's it's true. Um, it's an old Peter K joke. Uh, you know, where he says, "I'll put big light on. What one with a thousand watt bulb." <laughs> yeah, of course. These days, it's all LED. So you've taken down big light because it. So I've taken down big light because the, it's in the way of the projector right. casting its image. But I prefer having up lighters mm-hmm. anyway. Yep. So it's like the IKEA not lamps. Um, so those I've got two in my living room, and they've got Osram Zigbee bulbs in them. Mm. And so I've got a Zigbee door thing so if the, it tells you if the door's open oh, nice. or okay. closed yep. door sensor yeah so i've got one of them on the front door one of them on the back door and so i set up an automation that if i come home and open the front door but if if it's not sunset don't do you know, it's got to be sunset right so if i open the front door and it's dark outside the living room light comes on straight away nice which allows me to see and go for the alarm turn the alarm off <laughs> and an additional step in there, which I still haven't done, is IKEA have got quite a nice range of smart appliances, and they are sort of Philips Hue-ish. I believe Philips had some part in that technology, but a lot of that is Zigbee stuff. It's... A lot of Philips Hue stuff is Zigbee. Um, they have an electric blind, so I have a blind on the front window. So the idea being that if it's dark, put the blind down. Yeah. Right, but then if I come in, the blinds are already down. The lights come on because it's dark, and then I can see. That's so cool. I'm using technology to assist me because, yeah, we've got the projector, but the the big light was in the way. Big light is no more. I prefer the up lighters and the the, the light that it casts anyway. The other one is um, I have a cat. Many people have pets. It's fairly common. Um, but if I walk into the kitchen, or the cat walks into the kitchen, I've got a Zigbee motion sensor above the door, which turns on an LED strip underneath the kitchen cupboards. Oh, very handy. Which subtly lights the kitchen. Just enough for so a midnight snack or cat visibility. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I, I can cook. Uh, I can cook with the lights that's there. The other side of the kitchen is just about lit, but you're not uh, falling over things in the middle of the night or something. You walk in, the light comes on, it's not too bright. It's not too dark. The cat walks in and can see what he's eating. That would be enough to be in the dark eating his food. That's handy. And so I walk into the room, and if I walk out again, our motion isn't detected for a minute. The light goes out again. That's really cool. Now you're using Home Assistant to do all of this. Is that right? So this is on a local. So, yeah, this is all connected to Home Assistant and most of the the Zigbee devices, like the door sensor and. And the motion sensors are Sonoff, a Chinese company called Sonoff, which have their own solution for smart things, um, sort of mm. hub and, and stuff. 
but um, a great bit of technology is um, a project called Task Motor, which allows me to basically get rid of any firmware that Sonoff has on the devices that have firmware, uh, e.g. the Wi-Fi plugs, which I don't use, but I've, I've flashed the Wi-Fi plug for my old boss okay. for him to use. Um, that, that's another story. That was quite a cool uh, experiment. But So all of those Zigbee devices connect to a Sonoff Zigbee hub, oh. which is just a USB-powered Wi-Fi device uh, that I've flashed the task motor firmware onto, and that connects to my Home Assistant server which I've got to say is the best Linux-based thing I've ever used because it is like a real product that you could pay money for. It's very slick. It's impressive. I, I haven't used it, but I've seen people use it. So I, because I'm in the... in You know, all of my devices, you know, my Mac, everything, are Apple. I'm in the HomeKit ecosystem. Um, but what's nice is um, I do have a Philips Hue Hub um, because... Uh, apart from, I'd say I've got a mix, but most of my lighting is hue of some description. And what's nice is, of course, that hue hub is a Zigbee hub as well. And I think you can, t- in fact, <clears throat> I know that those Osram Zigbee bulbs, at least, when they connect to the Philips hub for Zigbee, they then are passed through into HomeKit. So Philips used to restricted to their own products they changed that um which is really good but similarly sort of as you were saying because that's contained within your lan you don't have to worry about the remote access you can set up remote access i assume you do this if you want remote access you set, you set up a remote access to home assistant and you're not using some you know chinese manufacturer's cloud provide cloud solution or amazon solution where you've got potential I'm being really careful I say this because I don't want to accuse any company of, you know, privacy violations, but we know there are issues with these things. We know the amount of data that we're harvesting is not ideal. Um, if nothing else, it becomes complicated. You then need, you know, different apps for different systems. You need different credentials. So, you know, sticking with one system, be that HomeKit, be it Home Assistant. Um, and I know, I think you can... Tie HomeKit into Home Assistant through, I'm guessing probably through, can you do that? Is it Hoobs? Um, so Homebridge, is it, is it? I'm thinking. Well, yeah, I think it's called Homebridge. I, I switched back to iOS late last year, and I just thought, hmm, I wonder if HomeKit works with that. So I just logged into the Home Assistant, went onto the plugin store thing, and installed this thing called Homebridge, or whatever it was. Yes, it is Homebridge, And yeah. then it asks you if you want to, I think there's two ways of doing it, either... Uh, add devices fully into HomeKit and have HomeKit control it all. Uh, sorry, I think I think you can either have it so that HomeKit controls it all and you can do everything in that, or you can just sort of bridge it over so that the devices are visible in HomeKit and you can do stuff, but it won't interrupt any of your automations or anything in, in Home Assistant. So um, all, all that allows me to do is shout at Siri to turn the lights off when I put the projector on instead of yeah. walking over to... I've got this 10-inch uh, Philips. Um, it's it's a digital signage display, a touchscreen one. Okay. Uh, I got off eBay for like 30 quid, uh, which is wall-mounted 
and just runs Home Assistant in the browser. Oh, nice. So you've got like a So panel. I get the full dashboard of Home Assistant. I can check the temperature, the time, the weather, inside and outside. Um, I can control the lighting. I can control the color of the LED strip in the kitchen if I wanted. Nice. Which I, I just have it set to white. Yeah. But I could do that. You can have all your other things. You know, some people have got uh, solar panels that they've tapped that into Home Assistant to show uh, all of the their energy usage, how much solar uh, they're generating through our, a given day. You get graphs of information based on temperature. and um, It's really nice. I don't have remote access set up on it. It's literally just within the LAN. Uh, I do want to expand it by getting some cameras. But again, it's like you said before, every manufacturer's got their own solution mm. for it, their own app. You know, the LED strip in my kitchen is a Zigbee one, but they wanted you to use their app. You know, TP-Link have got their app for their stuff. Their stuff is, from what I've seen, all Wi-Fi stuff. I don't want loads of Wi-Fi yeah. devices. If it's got Wi-Fi, that means it's got some kind of m- more intelligent firmware or microcontroller, but also by default, it has access to the internet and other devices on the local area network. And there's no need for my light, my LED bulb in the to living have room, internet access. No. to have internet access. No. There's just no need. And, you know, it, it's something, again, teasing future episodes. Most of us, you know, most home users don't have sophisticated routers where we can do vlans and put all our iot stuff onto dedicated vlans you know my vodafone router certainly does have it and 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 while you can absolutely go out and use a cheap cheap old pc for a pf sense box it's probably beyond most people and let's be honest they're not energy efficient some of them are especially past uh sort of sixth gen car i series um you know you might get um very low usage them being just bog standard old office machines they'll have 80 plus um 80 plus gold or above power supplies but the power supplies are only rated for maybe 120 150 watts okay because the, the cpus may be you know top uh, uh 65 watts but the graphics are built in these days that's true we're running solid state storage each component uses less power, and even one of those machines sat idle will probably use less than 25, 30 watts. Okay, so now that's an interesting one, because, of course, Home Home Assistant runs on a Linux, Linux machine. Home Assistant is easy in that you can... It's, re, it's a really nice project. You can just put it on an SD card and slap it into a pie, oh. and you're done, Right. You can run it as a virtual machine. I think you can run it as a Docker container. Nice. They are. They have also created their own hardware, and I don't know if it's shipping yet. But you could buy a Home Assistant box, an actual thing Ooh. that does exactly what it does. And like I said, it's it's the best Linux thing I've ever used. I've never had any issues with it, and it's easy to work around and well documented. Mm. Um. Going in there and you can do coding stuff. Sometimes you have to for newer devices that aren't very well supported right. yet. But it's really, 
an awesome project because of how surprisingly polished it is. But it's it's very easy to use and stuff like the lights not working. I can't have it not working. And I feel totally confident because Home Assistant works. I do like that. I mean, literally had an example of frustration. Now, this wouldn't have been a problem. Well, the reason this was a problem is, so my parents, um, I was up there this weekend. On Sunday morning, their Virgin Media connection died. And didn't surprise not at all surprising. Honestly, I, I'm gonna. I don't mind saying this on my podcast. I cannot recommend Virgin Media or O2 to anyone. Their customer service is shocking, <laughs> and there's a, there's so many problems with Virgin Media. Um, they're, they're, I'm not gonna get there, but I cannot recommend them at all. But the connection, and, and I will say, in my experience, in my area, it's not very good, and engineers have told me in person that the town is oversubscribed you know unreliability if they've oversubscribed then th- there we go that's it that's you know it. it could happen to anyone it could no and it this affected a huge this Any wasn't provider. just my parents street this is a huge part of the town they live in um but the point is obviously that connectivity went off so you have you would have been fine because home assistant well so here's the thing actually maybe you wouldn't have been because if your internet connection's offline, you then have to fall back to 4G to order mobile data for internet access. Unless you're very fancy and you've got one of these fallback things. You've got like a fallback one on your router. Um, I don't. Um, more specifically, my parents don't. So we obviously turned off our Wi-Fi, which means we lost connectivity to, in this case, we lost connectivity to the HomePod, which act, uh, acted as the HomeKit hub for the house. Which meant that obviously, first of all, Siri wouldn't work because certainly not on the HomePod because on the HomePod it doesn't do local requests for some reason. So if they couldn't turn anything on and off with that, we could do it on the actual devices through Home App because it was still, if we were connected with Wi-Fi, but of course we'd all turned our Wi-Fi off. So I had to keep turning my Wi-Fi back on and off to go and turn on lamps and stuff. And before anyone says, yes, we could have done it manually with the, the switches... So, yes. But it is a point of frustration. Whereas, I guess, uh, same thing would have happened to you, I suppose. If you'd had to disconnect from your Wi-Fi network for some reason, you wouldn't have been... Yeah, you wouldn't be able to get to Home Assistant either. So. Um, no, it, it's hardwired and it runs on its own display. So I have a, oh. a physical interface oh, to it. So, you would be fine. You know, yeah. the, the power would have to be off. Yeah. My server would have to that be off sense. for it to not work. But if the... Power's off, then I can't turn the light on anyway. No, there's that, there's that wonderful, famous IT support story. It always makes me smile. Uh, someone calls in and says, I'm, my computer's not turning on. Oh, okay. Um, let's see what we can do. Is the light on? I, I can't really see, to be honest with you. I'm like, oh, okay. Can you go on my back and just see if a power socket's plugged in? No, I can't see. And they say, why can't you see? He says, oh, um, there's no lights on. He said, well, turn the light. He says, we can't. We've had a power cut. <laughs> so I will say though on the subject of smart home one thing that I'm really excited about and really think is simplifying connectivity is thread or what's going to become matter um, so El, uh, Eve and Nanoleaf are big supporters of this and I have Nanoleaf's essential bulbs which are thread they don't need a Wi-Fi connection they the home pod mini is a thread hub 
really nice. And I think some of TP-Link's Deco stuff is as well. Oh, I might, no. So the M9 Plus, the TP-Link Deco M9 Plus is a Zigbee hub. Um, not many people know that, but yeah, some of TP-Link's um, Deco stuff is, has a Zigbee radio. Um, but the idea is that you then don't, they don't necessarily need an internet connection. And the, the firmware updates, they I think they go through the HomePod. But one of the really cool things, if you've got Apple's, um, if you've got routers that support our HomeKit routers, you can actually say what devices on your network get what connectivity, which is kind of like VLANs, but for, well, for normal folk. Um, and I really like that. I, I, I mean, I'd, I'd counter that by saying, yeah, but Zigbee, you know, doesn't need internet anyway, so why why overcomplicate it? You do. It doesn't need to be connected to the internet. No, that's true. You do um, need a hub, though, for Zigbee. Yeah, which just needs power. That's true. Just needs power and network. And yeah, that's true. Me router to be on for the Wi-Fi. That's true. And my, the, the uh, Philips um, one is Ethernet-based, so that's really nice. Anyway, so that's, how, that's probably... You know, that's, that's smart home stuff. I'd, I'd love to hear in the comments on, on the podcast post, what smart home stuff do you guys have? What 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 have you found frustrating? Please share your horror stories or your, or your success stories. And if you've got like an awesome setup that you want to brag about, by all means, leave a comment in the, um, in the podcast post on the site. Crosswires.net, you can find all our podcast episodes there and we've got comments turned on for all of them. Thank you, Substack, by the way, for actually allowing us to have a blog and a podcast completely hosted for free. It's so cool. Uh, and embedding discussions. Um, so when you go to the site, it will prompt you to subscribe, but you know what? You, you don't have to. You can say, no, I just want to read. Um, but the subscription is an email subscription, so you can get all of our latest episodes and blog posts and YouTube videos right to your email inbox. I think we've both had our share of uh, fun and games with smart home. I will say your setup sounds more, what's the word, more resilient than the ones I've gone for. I'm very much reliant on HomeKit. So if something went wrong with HomeKit, I would be, I would struggle. But I, I really need to look into Home Assistant. So thank you for that. We'll put, obviously, a link to Home Assistant in the show notes. So our final complication a final annoyance, or I mean, I say annoyance, but there's a reason I get annoyed with this, and it's passwords and authentication. Now, I am a huge fan of One Password. One Password has simplified the management of my passwords and all of my other little bits of security information so much. I, I just honestly, I pay for a family subscription, and it is worth every single penny because it simplified my parents' password management as well. Um, but what it also means is that if, for example, I need to share an account with them, God, Netflix. Um, <laughs> sorry, anyone, anyone listening from Netflix? Um, I absolutely did not just share my password with my parents. Uh, but well, your family. Oh well, yeah, we just you don't live in the same household. Netflix. But I'll say this: if you want people to stop sharing passwords, Netflix, stop charging so flipping much. True barrier to entry. It really is. Like, okay, this wasn't meant to be a rant about Netflix, but you look at. Um, Disney Plus, you look at Apple TV Plus and Amazon Prime Video. Even if you're two of which didn't exist five years ago, this is true. Their prices are much more favourable. They don't seem to care about you sharing passwords. They really don't. Um, in fact, Amazon actually make it so you can have a second actual account 
linked to your Prime membership, like another Amazon account. So I do that for my for my mom. Apple TV Plus is actually quite a, a really nice way of doing it because that ties into the whole iCloud family sharing thing, which, yes, Apple say it should be within your household, but they don't stop you. And instead of you having to share your Apple TV password, you just get add their iCloud ID into your family plan. It's much simpler. But but going back to the point, managing passwords, you know, one password's family plan, it means that, for example, things we share, like, for example, because I am tech support for my parents, my dad has put our their Virgin Media online sort of management login, you know, for the billing and stuff, into our family vault. So that if I need to get in and check something, like, for example, if they've been overcharged or when it comes to renewal time, I can say, okay, this is what we've been paying, this is what I'm going to negotiate, or if there's any faults, anything like that, I can deal with it. I mean, lots of different examples. Because back when we, particularly when we started off with computers and you, usernames and passwords were a lot simpler. We didn't have the same complexity requirements. You're obviously a systems admin, so you have to deal with a lot of making sure your customers and your users are using decent passwords and decent two-factor authentication. Do you think password and authentication has become more complicated? And maybe, but the phrase I always use is maybe more user-hostile. Yeah, and it kind of by nature needs to... Well, you can't just have a password that is cow. No. (laughs) It's easy to guess. It couldn't have one word... You don't want something that's easy to guess. So you start with that, and you come up with something that's harder to guess, but you still get people trying to brute force the account. But harder to guess sometimes waits to harder to Mm -hmm. remember. And people don't like remembering stuff, or technology, it seems. Then we've got multi-factor authentication on top, which... Because people are guessing passwords, because people are brute forcing passwords, um, it's it's a necessity. Yeah. What I, from what I see, multi-factor isn't. It depends how it's implemented. Really good point. What really winds me up is when multi-factor sends you an email, jeez, oh, and you have to wait for the yeah. email to come through. For example, Steam um, does this. Or yeah. Yeah, you can set it to otherwise, you can set it to something else, but, okay, is a normal person going to go, right, I 100% know what multi-factor authentication is, and I'm definitely going to go into settings of my account on Steam, Mm -hmm. or wherever it is, and I'm definitely going to change that to Authenticator app, and I'm definitely going to go in and set up an Authenticator app, which is whatever it is, and then that database of authentication keys is stored on your Mm -hmm. phone, or are you going to pay for... uh, last pass or one password and it's we have these services to i guess make it easier but these services exist because it's hard no it's a really good i mean look you know i going back over you know again not to pimp too much for one password but going back over how it was created it was created because the founders dave tier and rustam karamov wanted to scratch their own itch and actually to be fair that that tends to be my favourite software. Software that's created to scratch the developer's itch and is then made public. But it was because it was hard and because we needed, you know, because in an ideal world, every single password for every single system that you use where single sign-on isn't involved. Put that caveat on there. I like single sign-on. I think it's a great thing. Um, but it's a pain to set up. 
But ideally, every password for every site should be unique and should be, you know, secure. So it shouldn't be something that anyone else can guess. It should have a certain complexity. Now, complexity, incidentally, does not always translate to length. You could have a really long password that was full of dictionary words. Now, dictionary words meaning these are in a bun- are in well the dictionary, but also what we call password dictionaries that these attackers will use to try and brute force your passwords. You know, so there's a you know there's a list of common passwords, but there's all these dictionaries as well. So you want complexity, but complexity doesn't mean long. It means, so for example, using special characters. One thing I do want to sort of really highlight. If you need a password that's memorable, so for example, your Windows login, if you're not using Windows Hello, but if you need a password that's memorable, don't forget that a space is a special character. Use a phrase, you know. There's that old XKCD joke, correct horse battery staple. If you put spaces in between that, you increase the, the complexity or what I think in a technical term, I might be wrong on this, is called entropy. So the entropy of your password is, it basically contributes to how long it would take modern modern brute forcing attacks to be able to guess that password and crack it so the more complexity you put in the longer that's going to take and there are oh there are sites that will tell you but be very careful because the last thing you want to do is fall into a scam site and enter your password (laughs) to see how strong it is and then that end up yeah um there are good sites that you can use and um, services like One Password and I think LastPass do this. I know Bitvorden do as well. Will use tools. Will will use the Have I Been Pwned site to offline see if your passwords are weak. But I think you hit the nail on the head with implementation because I need to double check this. But I think Steam only allows you to use their Steam Authenticator. I don't think it allows you to use like Google Authenticator or, you know, like uh, being able to, because 1Password has the feature where you can scan a QR code into 1Password and have them just generated from there, which I I like. Um, But a lot of tools will only allow their proprietary multi-factor. One that drives me party, which I really wish they would allow something better, is the Universal Credit site. You know, I'm unemployed at the moment, so I am claiming Universal Credit. You have to use use text message two-factor. And there's the only period that you can trust a particular browser session for browser for is seven days. But why can't I just set up Google Authenticator again one password with this? Why why are you forcing me to use text message when we know that there's potential I, I think this is more so in, in the US than here, but you know, it's in the US it seems it's shockingly easy to take over someone's cell phone number. But you know, if you can get access to someone's SIM card, you potentially have the, the keys to their two factor. For a lot of services, and it's quite scary. Yeah, you got to bear in mind the chance of that happening. True. It is slim. There's risk. What is the risk? The risk is that someone could call your provider and have done a bit of social engineering and got your name and address and blah, 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 and you don't necessarily need your, what's your unique password or whatever when you phone up, because um, I'll ask you something yeah. else. What was the amount on your last bill? Well... I already know their email address, so I guess their email password. And they don't have two factor set up on that. They'll find a way yeah. through source and engineering to 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 get that information. Uh, and that's an interesting one and it's again maybe a piece of advice. This wasn't meant to be a security, you know, sort of discussion, but it is a really valid piece of advice. 
be careful what you post on social media. You know those questions. I mean, I'm not on Facebook for I. I just can't stand Facebook. Sorry, but those quizzes, like, what is it? Um, tell her, you know, the the last thing you your pet's name, your the street you grew up on, all this stuff, and this will give you your rapper name. No, what that's doing is effectively giving them all of your security question answers. But guess what? I mean, here's here's one that I always have fun with. I never set my security answers to anything that are actually genuine. I generate all my security questions in one password. Causes absolute chaos when I'm on the phone with like a provider. What's your mother's maiden name? Uh, ZXRG6. What? <laughs> <laughs> is that a motorbike <laughs> what was your last motorbike um, you work in IT and corporate two factor um, I will say I am quite a fan of Microsoft Authenticator and how they've done some reverse stuff it's so yeah it's, it's quite good um, from my point of view with Azure AD is a really yes. good tool um, in that you can set and force Multi-factor. Um, you can also see a lot of where your login attempts mm. are coming from, and a lot of detail to do with that included in um, a lot of the Microsoft 365 business plans, yes. which a lot of businesses these days do have. Um, you have things like conditional access. You have stuff where you can as part of conditional access limits where accounts can be logged into from. So if you don't want that account logging in from somewhere that is France or you know Spain or wherever it might be, and you know that person definitely isn't going to be there, uh, you can limit that based on the number of factors. Well, yeah, if you've got Bob, if you've got Bob sat in stuff. the office down the hall from you and, all of a sudden, and you know he's there because you've just spoken to him, and all of a sudden you've got login attempts into Bob's account coming from Paris or Nigeria, you know you've potentially got either Bob's gone on a very quick vacation or, did I just say vacation? I'm, I'm pandering to him. I'm sorry. Bob's gone on holiday. Bob's, Bob's packed up. Holiday. Bob's, Bob, holiday. Bob's been down to Lumpoly. The point is, you know that... That something's going on with Bob's account. It's wonderful to have that sort of uh, that analysis. One thing that frustrates me is when you see banks and and other services trying to be too clever with security security measures that aren't really security measures. The one that's always driven me potty, and uh, because uh, particularly particularly someone who uses a password manager, it, it's. Not it's gotten easier, but <clears throat> Barclays, please tell us the fourth, fifth, and twenty fourth character oh, of your password. No. <laughs> no, so there's an interesting one here because okay, I understand why they've done that. They think it means people will choose more complicated passwords, or rather. No, I don't know what they think. But there's a, there's a harsh reality. in Now, certainly when I looked into this last, which I admit was a long time ago, so I'm happy to be fact-checked on this, for them to be able to do that sort of fifth, sixth, seventh, you know, random character, they need to have an unencrypted copy of your password to be able to compare it against. So what does that mean? 
Well, that means potentially that your password is not stored in a secure way. Which means if they have a data breach, bye-bye your password. Which is why you should be using unique passwords. But it doesn't, if you, instead of doing that, educate your customers on, you know, look, whether or not you use 1Password, whether or not you prefer LastPass, whether or not you prefer Bitwarden, you know, I don't care what password manager you use. Educate your customers on using password managers. Educate them on good password habits. And, and HSBC, I'm calling out, you know, banks here. HSBC use the, I'm really <laughs> slamming into the banks. HSBC use those horrible little um, token things, you know, like the little pin pad. I quite like them. They're like low tech, True. but it is two factor. That's a good, do you know what? You're right, it is. It is a hardware. It's a hardware token, which is actually yeah. better than a, a software. But it's a single point of if failure. If that thing breaks, or you lose it. Because you could have an encrypted database of tokens that's backed up mm-hmm. elsewhere and further secured, or it could be backed up offline. Yeah. And so if the device dies, you just restore your... It could be a paper copy. It could be a disk. It could be non-mechanical. Mm-hmm. In nature, but a backup of the code. Now, the one, the one I did like, and I thought was actually quite reasonable, if they'd used it in conjunction with a standard username and password as a second factor, I wouldn't have had a problem. But this is actually Barclays, so they were doing this fifth, sixth, and seventh, and all this. But Pin Sentry, mm. because Pin Sentry, because it was a standard, I could take my Barclay Pin Sentry device and put my card into it and generate the codes I needed. But if my device failed, a, I could go to any branch and just grab a new one. B, if someone, say, had a NatWest one, in fact, I tried this um, when I moved accounts, NatWest had the same tech, so I just used the Barclays one because I, I think either I kept the Barclays one at home and kept my NatWest one in my bag or something like that, but because it was the same technology, they were interchangeable. That was okay. And, of course, hey, here's a forward-thinking idea. Support... Uh, um, YubiKeys and and actual yeah. um, you know hardware keys um, because you've got the whole U2F and you've got the web orphan standard you've got some really cool new security standards that should make things much easier but the problem is the adoption is so slow I want to see it more you know if my my ideal would be that all my two factor would be tight. Would be able to be like a push notification onto my iPhone that I just face ID with, because that's still two factor. In fact, it's, it's but it's easy it's, and biometrics. I think if you log into iCloud.com, it does that. It asks you. It says there's been a login mm-hmm. attempt. It comes up. It tells you roughly where and it, it generates is. the code. You can allow or not, and then it generates the code. But you have had to have unlocked your phone to see face. that code. Yes, I do like that, and it's right there when when you have done so. It is actually really nice. The only thing that annoys me if it's an Apple device that you're. So if I'm logging into, say, if I'm logging into iCloud on my Mac, the prompt comes up on my Mac. I would prefer it not to come up on the device I'm using. Mm. I don't know. That's maybe just me. That's maybe just me thinking. But you know, and those newer app, you know, the Mac with Touch ID. Wonderful, and again, as I said, I you know Windows Hello seems like Microsoft actually put some thought into it. There seems to be decent enough security requirements that Windows Hello is viable as a security product. I guess I I don't have a problem with with pa- requiring password complexity. 
I just have a problem with over, over, with what people call security theater. So overcomplicating login processes, which could be solved by strong passwords and good two factor. I, 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 you know, 2022, I still don't think there's much wrong with having a book that you write passwords down in that's stored in a house that's secured. Ooh. Okay. I mean, sorry. Do you know what? If if it's stored in a secured location, I I don't have it good, personally, good. but I know people that do. I because I use it as a. You remember when brain training on the oh, DS yes. was yeah, all yeah. the rave? So I, me remembering passwords is uh, a mental okay. exercise for me, and that's how I, how I look at it. I I can understand. So I can remember a password from a conversation I had with someone a week ago. I couldn't tell you where I had for tea last gammon, night. Gammon and egg. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I'm do- bringing out some big northern stereotypes. What did you have for your tea last night, oh, Denise? <laughs> um, I should say, we should probably say, of course, we, we joke a lot about northern culture. That's because we are both from the north. Although I live now in the south, I live in Bournemouth. Hey, you know what you said before? You went secure. Did Instead of secure, I do. you said secure, and you didn't call yourself out on it. It's all coming back to you. <laughs> Look, my, my mind you, I, I don't say secure, but I'm more closer to Liverpool, so it is secure. <laughs> I think I've been watching too much. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it's it's it, it. Accents are a wonderful thing, and I do hope I do oh, yeah, hope our is. American listeners have been able to understand us. <laughs> well, not that bad. Well, not really bad. <laughs> um, so, I think we should probably look to wrap up. Um, what I will say for cultural references, the ones we're talking about, I can highly recommend a couple of shows that you should watch for understanding Northern culture: Phoenix Nights, Dinner Ladies, and The Royal Family. And if you want something more YouTube based, I like. Uh... A guy who goes around and does food reviews and his channel's called Rate My Takeaway. Nice. Where he's all like, hey up. But he's he's from Yorkshire. And uh that that's a good watch. If you if you like watching people review different food places and he just turns up with his table, he gets his chair out and he goes, Chair test and he's a big fella and he'll sit down on it and he's like, Oh, Survived another day. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Because, you know, t- oh, takeaways, you know, living down here in the South, take- it's so much more expensive. It's, it's ridiculous. Anyway, look, Jack, it's been really fun to talk a little bit of tech complications with you. I think, as we say in pre-show, we're not always going to agree on everything. I, I don't advocate for password books, but I understand the reasoning behind it. And, you know what, we can have that discussion. And I think that's one of the biggest things I really want people to take away from this show is, you know, this is a discussion. Please, you know, use the comments below and talk to us about it because, you know, I really want this to be a community. Look, I'm just going to pre-announce something here. I'm working on a Discord server. Um, I, I want to just make sure it's safe for everyone. So it is going to be over 18s only, and that's purely to just protect everyone. Um, because in this day and age, you have to be really careful, unfortunately. Um, you know, so, but it, it, I want it to be a space where we can chat. You know, look, I think we can both say the RMC Discord, RMC Retro Discord server is one, is certainly my, one of my favorite places to hang out. And Neil and the team have just made everyone so welcome. And I don't think I was 
as involved during the lockdowns as you were, but I know you shared how vital it was during lockdown. And, you know, there's so much knowledge sharing. I really want to build that. So not sure when it's going to be, um, but I will announce when it is. So, you know, we'll have a Discord server. But discussion is such a, a huge part of IT and such a huge part of technology. I, I I really advocate... Look, we all have different opinions on technology, but you know what? That's what makes us a great community because we can share and learn from each other. As long, Look, as long as we treat each other with some sort of basic, decent human respect, there's room for discussion. Opinions and experiences are what make us individual. Absolutely. So... Speaking of opinions, um, what rubbish did you buy on this week on YouTube? Now, this is your YouTube channel. This is where you... Is, it, is that... What rubbish did I buy on YouTube? Is that the... What, what crap have you yes. bought now? And, <laughs> yeah, so this is Jack's YouTube channel. And I watched a couple of episodes. And I will say, f- memories just came flooding back. I think you got a system with a Zalman flower cooler. And I just had a flashback to trying to install the dang thing into a machine and honestly cutting fingers and yelping in pain from trying to install because they were sharp i mean they look sharp but they were sharp things you know <laughs> so it, it, yeah so we'll put a link to that in the show notes make sure you send me a link to i fact, i'll find i've got it because i'm subscribed yeah if, if you like occasional ramblings about some crap that i think's interesting or even mundane videos like how to clean computer fans, which you don't see many big YouTubers sort of talk about. And I think you don't have to bin the fan. You can just yeah. take it apart and lubricate it. And it's usually back to how it was. And it's little tips like that, things that I find interesting. But also I've got a, a, a few interesting things like a, a digital video editing system from the late oh, 90s, wow. um, which, again, is something I found that was very interesting and not very well documented on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't put out all the time, but I, I do it when I want to. I'm not yeah. trying to do anything else, really, with it. So, yeah, uh, check it out if you're into old crap. <laughs> <laughs> which which is what I lovingly refer to as, uh, as my dad. Oh, wait. <laughs> Sorry. No, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't. My dad is a lovely boy. Hey, many of you have seen my dad's hands in, in the time capsule video. <laughs> hey, you know, look, talk, you know, we talk about, we, I think the message I really want to come from what I'm doing is that technology doesn't have to be disposable. It can, we can get so much. You know, you know, you talk about refurbing fans. Looking after your check, tech is such an important thing. And, you know, that. And I think to to sum up this whole episode, that doesn't just involve a physical aspect of tech. I think we just need to be really conscious of how we look after our digital lives, how we look after, you know, how if we're going to do smart home stuff, we might need to do a bit of extra research, a bit of think, planning before just buying the latest five quid Wi-Fi smart plug off Alibaba. And why is it five pound? Why is this Amazon Alexa device that claims to give me all of these benefits, only £20. Well, maybe it's because they're taking your data and doing something with it to benefit them. Absolutely. If you're not paying for a product, you are the product. Just remember that, folks. Look, you know, there are lots of great video doorbells that are not ring, that are secure. There are lots of great security cameras that are not internet connected. There's lots of rubbish ones as well, 
but there are good there are some good I remember in a previous role one of our director's dads had given him this security camera system for us and the cameras were HD but it was over like um, like a BNC connector they were not network cameras and the DVR was Chinese. It had the worst instructions. It had a horrible interface. And the only way you could access the web interface, you'll love this. So bear in mind, this was in 2019, was in Internet Explorer 6 with ActiveX. <laughs> yep. Yep. And just for context, we were running Windows 10 at this point in the business. So yeah, that, that went back and um, we actually did um, Unify. In the end, um, so yeah. Anyway, Jack, it's been a pleasure. Are you on social medias that people can find you as? As it's an arse or um, not that you want to see really. <laughs> just just the YouTube channel. That's on I the think, topic. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> My other hobby is cars. <laughs> There's nothing about cars and technology. Just tell me you haven't put a ZX Spectrum into but into like a glove box or something. No, but we, we, me and the mate joked about putting a PS2 in a car. No, nothing wrong with that at sake. all. Um, by yeah. the way, I do want to just, um, before we wrap up, because I realise time is, this is going to be a long episode, sorry about that, folks. The PS1 you refer to is not the PlayStation, original PlayStation. It's the lovely little mini compact PS1, P-S-O-N-E, that I, I just loved that machine. I nearly got one. But my mum, my mum wouldn't let me and my sister buy it. We're gonna buy it on our own money as well, but she wouldn't let us buy it. She, she didn't want us to have one. So, yeah. Anyway, Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. So, thank you all for listening. Um, please do check out crosswires.net for all the latest blog posts and podcast episodes. Crosswires.net for slash YouTube for the YouTube channel. I do have a new video that's kind of in the works. And, of course, make sure you follow us on Twitter at CrosswiresMG. You can drop an email to podcast at crosswires.net. And, of course, as I said, make sure you leave a comment on this post and do like and subscribe. See you next time. This is the story of the one. 
As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.